Education, and in particular, recruiting and retaining the best possible teachers, is a common topic in politics today, but not one we usually associate with revolution, nationalism, and the government's hold on power. We'll be talking today about how those were closely linked in the first half of the 20th century in the Middle East. The guest today on Historical Outreach is Hilary Faub, a seventh-year graduate student studying educators in Iraq, Palestine, and Transjordan in the first half of the 20th century. Welcome to the show, Hilary. Thanks, Doug. So as, as I said, we're talking about the Middle East. This is an area that a lot of us, despite it being in the news, maybe aren't quite so familiar with some of the, the recent history of, or especially going back a century. Can you sort of give us a setting here, a broad level overview? What's, what's going on in the Middle East leading into the 20th century uh, and in the period that we're going to be talking about today? What are sort of some of the big, big things that are happening? Um, well, so my project begins at the real tail end of the Ottoman Empire. At this point... Um, the sort of configuration that the Ottomans used to have, the sort of land holdings they used to have have been diminishing. Um, I'm sure people familiar with European history have heard that this is the point where the Ottomans are the sick man of Europe. So what this means within the Ottoman territories is that there are a lot of different attempts at reform to try to stop this process. And education forms a key part of this. And sort of late 19th century or early 20th century educational reforms are sweeping the globe as a whole. And one of the main ways that we see this coming into play is that there's a huge belief that education is the path to modernity and also to military superiority. So you so, see a huge, yes, go for so, it. Just out of curiosity, you say this weak, weak man of Europe. I'm just curious, how much were people considering uh, the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, European at this point, because that's not something we necessarily think of today either. How much does that sort of influence uh, attitudes towards education? Well, they actually used to be a mostly European empire. I mean, they started out more in Eastern Europe, but by this point, um, particularly after losses um, during the early years of the 20th century, they're becoming a much more Middle Eastern empire. But European powers are very interested in the resources available. It's not necessarily oil so much at this point, but it's a really strategic landmass. The British are very concerned with getting through to their holdings in India, and they also have certain control over areas in the Persian Gulf. Mm. And so with a weakened Ottoman Empire, there's a geo geopolitical sort of contest over who will end up with what piece of it, even before the First World War. Right. So how, how is it we get from there to uh, to where we're talking about soon with the, the British deciding what's going on in a lot of these places? Well, you end up with the Ottomans on the side of the Germans in the First World War. And... Basically, there were actually Ottoman attempts to be on the side of the French and the British, but they failed because of sort of interest in carving up the landmass and creating spheres of influence. However, um, and during the war, it becomes clear that Britain and France will not be able to annex the reason the regions that they control the way they used to. This is a shifting period also in terms of what imperialism is and how much of it is kind of palatable and acceptable on a global scale. So at the end of the First World War, you get the League of Nations. And there's sort of a commitment to not allowing outright conquest of territory in an attempt to prevent another world war. 
And so one of the benefits of this is that, well, I mean, I guess it depends whose benefit, but the British and the French carve out spheres of influence that are mandates. So a mandate was this temporary form of um, <clears throat> political entity meant to sort of ease the transition from being part of the being part of an empire to being a nation state. But these were these were uh, designations made by what the the League of Nations at this point. So some level of theoretical legitimacy, or was it just sort of self imposed? There, it, it was pretty much imposed by the British, the French, and the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. There was um, local inhabitants were coming to grips with no longer being part of the Ottoman Empire, which had existed for centuries, and also suddenly being part of new territorial distinctions, new territorial entities that had not existed previously. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what territory are we talking about, briefly, that, that the Ottoman Empire covered? Well... At least in the so slave it, period. So in the slave period, it included basically all of what we think of as the Middle East today, except for Iran, mm -hmm. which is never a part of it. But it also, it extended through Turkey, through Egypt, although the hold was quite tenuous at this point because of the strength of British influence, parts of North Africa, um, what's today like modern day Israel, the West Bank, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, that whole area. Mm -hmm. And um, and again, all of Turkey. So before we switch into talking about sort of uh, the, the differences in education policy and, and teachers uh, under the Ottoman Empire and the British uh, different mandate areas, uh, for what sort of influence on sort of a general level did the Ottoman Empire have on individual people's lives? I mean, I, I imagine it would be different depending on where you were, but how, how, sort of, how sort of intrusive were they in everyday life? How sort of uh, present were they in everyday life? How, mu how much variety was there across the areas we're talking about? There was a wide variety of levels of control, but essentially governance was Ottoman. So the language of governance would be Ottoman Turkish. If you wanted to have a connection to the state bureaucracy, you would have to be aware of Ottoman Turkish. Um, and also, of course, the state was the thing that taxed you and also in the First World War that conscripted you, which meant that it was quite intrusive by that point into people's daily lives. In terms of education, you don't have compulsory education at this point, and you certainly don't have universal education. So particularly in rural areas, any kind of government education just isn't there. Um, in rural and tribal areas also, there's still quite limited government involvement in people's daily lives. But again, taxes and conscription were beginning to be felt even in sort of the most rural areas during the First World War. Well, so what, what sort of education would people in these poor areas get, if any, if, if there's no, I mean, were there sort of communal schools, were there just, was there just sort of whatever sort of word of mouth you picked up as you went along? There are always um, schools attached to religious entities. So you'd have your, with a mosque, you'd have a local kutab, um, which in which students would go and there would be a sheikh and they would sort of learn the basics of reading, writing, arithmetic, and how to recite the Quran. Um, for Christian students, there were a lot of missionary schools, particularly in Palestine starting in the 19th century because it was part of the Holy Land. 
So you would have religious missionaries going there and sort of trying to convert people. But when that wasn't so successful, you'd end up having them become educators. So the majority of Christian inhabitants, particularly of the sort of Mediterranean Middle East region, um, actually received quite a strong education. Who were these teachers? I mean, so on the one hand, we have the religious teachers, I guess they're, they're sort of institutions in themselves, but are the, are the sort of uh, missionary teachers, what, middle class, upper class, uh, you know, are they, are they, uh, is there any sort of profile that sort of fits them as a group or are they really just a very different set of people um, across the board? Well, the missionary teachers are, are they're foreign pretty sure. much. Right. There, I mean, there's, um, uh, women and men, um, gem- you know, with quite a lot of zeal and sort of, there is a phrase about teaching your way around the globe where they'd go to different places and teach for a summer at people who were on their sabbatical. Um, but the pe- the children who went to missionary schools, again, both boys and girls, um, would often be more middle-class because at this point they, the schools charged admission. Mm-hmm. Right, is it clear how widespread literacy was at this point? I don't know if that sort of information is even available, but uh, if people are learning at least sort of to recite the Quran, that maybe includes some level of reading, or is it just oral? There's um, So there is some level of reading. There, there have been studies looking at literacy even during this early period, and it's not very widespread. I mean, and in a lot of these places, it continues. Like in Iraq, it was something like 60% of the population was literate by the, in the 1960s. So if you go back 60 years from there, it's really quite a small, a small percentage of the population that's literate, but it's, but it was growing at this point. Okay. So we've gotten to the point where the British take over and they, they take over these different areas and sort of carve it up into different zones. And I know you look mostly at Iraq, Palestine, and Transjordan. Transjordan, by the way, where, where is Transjordan today? Um, so it's modern day Jordan, basically. Okay. All right. So we have these three different zones. Can you sort of walk us through what changes and what, what sort of British education is like uh, on the ground in, the, in these different spots? Well, British education... Um, even though, because it's a mandate, I mean, the main point of the mandate is that essentially it's not a colony. So the British are eventually supposed to leave. And one of the ways in which they're supposed to civilize these people who are now under their control and sort of justify why they're there is by educating them and making them modern. So technically they have to provide schooling in some way. There's also a huge demand for schooling at this point because people have seen that with so many people not being educated, even a small bit of education gets you a job, especially with a government bureaucracy. Just like today. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I mean, I'll talk about that with Jordan later, but I mean, it's really quite explicit. You graduate from high school, you get a government job. Um, And so... Huge demand for education, really easy way to pacify people and convince the world that you're civilizing these people. On the other hand, the British, their only model of education is a colonial model, which starts out in India, they apply it in Egypt, they essentially apply it everywhere that they're in control of. And 
it seeks to prevent nationalist rebellions against them. How different is it from the actual education in Britain? Well, in Britain, it's actually like much more loosely controlled. Um, and the class distinctions in Britain are much more detailed. I mean, you have like middle class, slightly lower middle class, lower middle class. And in the colonies, they really only had two distinctions, a small elite and everybody else. And the mainly this, they were trying to educate sort of as few people as possible at this higher level so they would know English and the local languages and be able to act as intermediaries. So they could tell the masses of the population what to do and serve the British and sort of staff the, the bureaucracies required to keep the colonial states going because they're also much more cheaper to hire than a British person. Right. So, so how, how is this working out in the sort of individual cases here? How much is it different in Iraq versus Palestine versus Transjordan? Well, the thing is, the British really try the same thing everywhere they go. Um, so in all three of the areas under their control, initially, they set out with this policy. So they try to educate a very, very few people with a secondary education, including English, and then to sort of provide to a lot more people education in the vernacular that focuses on sort of vocational skills. So farming, um, they would have school gardens, and also religion as a way of sort of continuing morals. However, things differ in each of the three regions because the British have to rely on local figures to staff the bureaucracies, including the schools. So because you have different groups of people differently educated, and also at a certain point, very different levels of British control of education, you end up having different outcomes in each of the three regions. So in Iraq and Jordan, the British realized fairly early on that these places are too difficult to control directly. Jordan's in the middle of nowhere. It has no infrastructure. It has a bunch of rebellious tribes. It's never been a territorial unit. In Iraq, it's a huge area with a very diverse population that's quite rebellious against the British coming in. So what they decide to do is set up sort of puppet monarchies from an Arabian dynasty called the Hashemites. So they set up these kings who are dependent on British funding and British firepower. So they're basically going to do what the British want, but it gives more of an illusion of independence. And again, it sort of saves the British from having to keep a whole bunch of armed forces there in order to get the resources and strategic value they want out of these locations. In Palestine, on the other hand, the British have made a promise, um, the Balfour Declaration, to like, which occurred in 1917 during the war, which essentially said that the British government views with favor the development of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So this declaration was signed for a variety of reasons, a lot of which had to do with sort of millennial ideas of that if the Jews came to the Holy Land, it would bring about the rapture, but also ideas that it was a strategic move to sort of appeal to the Jews of the world to support the British during the war effort. Mm -hmm. At the end of this process, this declaration gets written into the mandate charter. So this means the mandate for Palestine is explicitly set up to create a Jewish homeland. The rest of the population, which is the overwhelming majority, 
um, are defined as sort of the inhabitants of Palestine who shouldn't have their civil rights abused because of the creation of a Jewish homeland. In effect, this is a really problematic situation. And the British, in order to facilitate the creation of this Jewish homeland, have to keep a much stronger hold on the country more generally. They also don't end up, uh, the Palestinian, Arab Palestinian population, so at this point, everyone in this region is a Palestinian population. There's a Jewish Palestinian population and an Arab Palestinian population made up of Muslims, Christians, Jews, etc. Um, so at this point, the Arab Palestinian population won't agree to create any representative bodies in the mandate because that would imply accepting the creation of a homeland for another group of people in their place where they're living. Mm -hmm. So you end up having a different situation in Palestine, which translates to more control over education and a system of schooling completely divided between Jewish and Arab. Well, for me, history a lot of times is that it's most interesting when it gets down to the human level and, and you get real human beings in there rather than sort of abstractions. Could you maybe walk us through one or two of these teachers uh, who, who are important in your research and just their, how their careers and lives changed as they went through this transition from late Ottoman to, uh, to British rule? Sure. Um, so what... Um, my general argument about these teachers is that because there are so few of them, because again, the British are educating so few people, that essentially no matter what they do, they can't be fired. <laughs> so this is not really a consequence of British policy that they had hoped for, because on the one hand, it means you can have really incompetent teachers. On the other hand, you can have teachers who are extremely politically subversive. And the one political stance that essentially everybody agreed on in all three mandates was that they didn't like the British and they wanted to be independent. So one guy who I've been focusing on, um, his name is Akram Zuaiter, and he, he's actually really famous. Um, he wrote a bunch of books, including textbooks, histories, and documents of the sort of revolutions that took place during these periods of the mandate. Um, he also ends up becoming a politician in Jordan during the 1960s through the 1980s. But he starts out as a teacher. So he's born in Nablus, which is in Palestine, in 1909. And his family sort of illustrates a lot of the tensions that took place during the late Ottoman period because his father was actually the mayor of the town. And then on the other hand, his brother was condemned to death by the Ottoman authorities because he participated in a revolt against them during the First World War. So Akram Zuaiter is ambitious and he really wants to get a good education. So he ends up going to the American University of Beirut. And this is the only university in the mandates. It's an, it was a form, it's a missionary institution in Lebanon. It still exists today, it's a really great place. Um, but at this point, it's, it's basically the closest and cheapest university for most of the inhabitants, even in Iraq, where it was sort of a week-long journey to get there. So at the American University of Beirut, because it's the only university, you have students from all over the region studying there. So Akram Zuaiter gets exposed to all of these political currents that people are thinking about 
So people are thinking about sort of pan-Arabism, Islamism, different anti-imperial tactics, different ways of sort of protesting the British. So he, while he's at AUB, he writes in this journal, he protests, and he mixes with a whole bunch of people who end up also becoming famous and generally who work as teachers at one point or another. So unfortunately for Zawaitir, he has to leave because he gets sick. So he goes home and the only job that he can easily find is to become an English teacher. And at first he's depressed because he says, you know, well, I have to stay this as a lowly English teacher. How am I going to, you know, sort of change the world if this is all I can do? But then he decides, you know what, this is a good stepping stone. This is a good platform for my politics. So he essentially uses teaching as a way to kind of preach at his students, his political beliefs. Something that However, would never happen today. <laughs> Well, again, I mean, and also the thing you, that it's important to remember about these students is sometimes they're older than he is. You don't have, they're not necessarily children because there aren't age requirements and because so few of the population is educated. So he ran different Boy Scout units. But again, these Boy Scouts could be 18, 20 year old men who are now roaming the countryside in uniform. Mm -hmm. um, so Akram Zawaitar also, while he's teaching, he interacts a lot with the government that it's employing him. He petitions them constantly in order to try to get a better shake. And this is something I found was characteristic of these teachers. They realized that they sort of had a lot of wiggle room. And so the way they would use this wiggle room is not only, you know, to sort of lead protests against the government that's employing them, but also to kind of try to get a promotion, to try to get a better transfer. So Zuaiter tries to get them to let him apply for scholarships at British universities. And they say, well, you can't do this because you don't have the necessary qualifications. You need to take an exam. Then he tries to see if he can matriculate at the Sorbonne. And they say, well, you don't know French, so this isn't going to work. And so finally, he ends up resigning because he thinks they're not listening to his demands quickly enough and takes classes in Jerusalem to become a lawyer. At this point, Zuaitar gets much more involved in sort of political activity. He becomes editor of a newspaper. He publishes a lot of tracts that are promoting a certain type of pan-Arab nationalism. However, it's fairly loosely defined because due to like the British hold on the region, he can't put it into practice. So he sort of has this vague idea that all of the Arab countries should come together and be as one, but he never really articulates how that's supposed to happen. This sort of idea of pan-Arabism for Akram Zuaitar increases during the 1930s when he actually gets kicked out of Palestine and checks over to Iraq, where the government actually hires him immediately again as a teacher. And there he gets, he's sort of even more of a nuisance. Um, a lot of paper is spilt on this particular guy because he's protesting, he's writing newspaper articles, he's also continuously petitioning the government, not only to better his own position, but also to undermine other people he disagrees with. However, in Iraq, by the late 1930s, you have a shift 
which leads to increasing militarization of education and actually support for Nazis, in part because they're against the British. By 1941, you actually have a war between Iraq and the British, which means you end up with teachers like Akram Zuwaiter finally getting kicked out of Iraq. So he ends up, after a lot of trekking around the Arab world, continuing to work in both education and sort of political agitation, he ends up a politician in Jordan. And Jordan is really happy to welcome him because he... He, in essence, gives them street cred. By this point, he's a recognized nationalist. On the other hand, he's never really advocated a political position that's concrete. And Jordan doesn't really want to change the status quo because, as I mentioned earlier, it's it really sort of it's almost the same as it was during the mandate period today. You have a king who's supported by foreign aid, and you don't really have a democracy. You have a really sort of corrupt and very limited system of politics. So what they get out of Akram Zuwaiter is it means, you know, look, like we're Arab nationalists. We have this guy. On the other hand, it means that they don't extend sort of political rights to the huge influx of Palestinians that are coming in after the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. So picking apart a little bit of this, how, how is that common for people to really sort of just flow across the region? Or is there not sort of attempts to keep people more localized? Is it that he was a teacher that let him travel so much? Or was that, that sort of um, movement something that was done a lot or accessible to anyone? Um, so the movement was extremely common. Again, these borders are quite new. Like, you know, they didn't exist before the 1920s. Um, some of the borders weren't fixed until the late 1920s. What this means is that people were used to having a sphere defined by language, defined by trade, defined by territory that doesn't correspond to the boundaries of the mandates or the countries that succeeded them. On the other hand, because Zuwaiter was a teacher, it meant that he could really find a job everywhere, which is one of the differences. Um, but I found many of the teachers I study had a similar path to Zuwaiter, where they would be born in Palestine or even Syria, and they would be educated at the American University of Beirut, and then they would go back to their countries and would teach and eventually rise to become a minister of some kind, either in Iraq or Jordan. Mm -hmm. So this this uh, American University of Beirut, you say that's the, the main one in the region. What, were there other higher education options available uh, sort of more broadly around, or was that really the place to go if you wanted more education in the Middle East in the first half of the 20th century? Up through the 1950s, it was actually the main area. There's, there, there's an American University of Cairo, which had a strong program in uh, particularly for women's education. So a lot of female teachers by the 1930s would be sent to Cairo. But mainly 
sort of male teachers, also people wanting to become doctors, would really go to the American University of Beirut before you got a, uni a university in Iraq, the University of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned also bursary students. Uh, these students were getting paid by the state to go to the American University of Beirut. Uh, to get more education, what, what was the what was the state hoping to get out of that, and what, what were their expectations for what they were going to win by sponsoring people to go uh, and get higher education at this time? In most of the areas, they were hoping. I mean, they were hoping to get trained personnel as cheaply as possible. And again, from the British perspective. They didn't want to have universities within their sphere of, sphere of influence because that would clearly be over-educating the population. Um, again, the big fear for the British was that you would end up with an educated unemployed. So by sponsoring individuals to go get education, it meant they also limited the number of individuals who got that education, but they still would end up with a few well-trained individuals from strong university um, that was also much less expensive than sending students to England or to the U.S., which they did do, but in much smaller numbers. I mean, it would be maybe one student per year. Mm -hmm. So with these teachers getting this, this fancy education and sort of ability to, to miss-set their own uh, career paths, how much freedom did they have to choose their own curriculums, what they were teaching? Uh, were there attempts anyway by... Uh, these different mandate states or someone else to sort of have a top-down curriculum at any point, or was it just left up to the teachers, uh, however qualified they were in each individual place? There was actually quite intense efforts to regulate the curriculum, but not the people who were teaching it, um, <clears throat> which means you had a lot of... Um, a lot of different figures having input in the textbooks, in the sort of prescribed curriculum for rural and urban schools. Um, and in Iraq, as I said before, they set up this puppet monarchy. And actually one of the departments that ended up getting the most local control in this situation was education. And the figure who was really fighting with the British on education was another educator, Satyal Husri, who was also a famous nationalist. And he really thought that Iraq should have a very rigid form of education. He was trained during the Ottoman period. He admired French education in particular. So he thought everyone and all the children in Iraq should be studying the same curriculum at the same time. He also filled it with more Arab history than could physically be taught. Um, <clears throat> whereas in Palestine, you had more control on the part of the British. So you would have, um, at a certain point, Latin introduced to the more elite schools of the curriculum, um, more elite schools. But in terms of what was actually going on in the classroom, in some instances, it was impossible to stick to the syllabus. And in other, in other ways, there was little regulation. They had inspectors, but the main test of sort of how educated students got um, would be whether or not they could take one of the exams that was implemented in all of the countries. So they would have, they would have statewide exams of different levels. You had a matriculation exam, which was very difficult. 
and teachers' exams, which were much less difficult. Um, however, in Palestine, you know, teachers were not able to really teach towards the exam because they were often teaching at quite a different level than the exam expected. And it wasn't usually based on the curriculum they were supposed to implement anyway. In Iraq, by the 1940s, you really do have teachers trying to teach for the exam because students were required to pass it in order to get to the next grade. So you had a huge demand on the part of parents for their students to pass this thing, whereas in Palestine, it really remained quite an elite phenomenon. And in Jordan, they had to go to Palestine if they wanted to take the exam anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I grew up, we always had to start the day with a sort of pledge of allegiance, you know, one nation under God, uh, this sort of thing. I would imagine these states, since they're so new, are still trying to get some sort of legitimacy or some sort of a nation, nation sense of nation built up in the people. Were there sort of similar attempts to build up, uh, you know, one, one Iraq uh, under, under God sort of um, uh, feeling, feeling of nationalism in the classroom? There were, but there's a lot of overlapping ideas of what the nation even means at this point. And it doesn't actually correspond to the nation states that are in place at this point. This means that in Jordan, they're singing songs to Syria every time they wake up in the morning because Jordan used to be part of an entity called Greater Syria. In Palestine, you would sing Palestine and also Arabs. In Iraq, similarly, you would sing Iraq, but also the Arab nation, which had very varying limits. I mean, in some points, you know, it extends for with all of the Muslim people of the earth and other in other times. It's <clears throat> limited to just the smaller Middle East, except for Turkey. Mm. And so students were getting contradicting messages, in part because the governments themselves were giving out contradicting messages about what nation they were really supposed to be pledging allegiance to. Mm -hmm. A sort of similar question, you know, in the U.S. we have the history of trying to uh, forcefully integrate Native Americans into what was seen American culture by forcing them to take up English language and and sort of uh, act in what people at that time thought was the American way to act. Uh, do you see sort of a similar use of language or, or sort of um, trying to integrate people into a, a new or, or predominant culture, um, even if not necessarily about the nation? Yes. I mean, how, but... how, does, how does language play into this story? Uh, you, you see these people, you know, he's teaching English, uh, uh, the, the men you talked about, as opposed to teaching you know, Arabic or, or other sort of local or local languages? Are, are things mostly being taught in English? Are they mostly being taught in the local languages? Almost all being taught in the local languages. English was essentially a foreign language of instruction, but again, it was seen as a path to a government job. So there was a lot of demand for it. And also within that, there was certain appreciation of British culture, if not British policies. Um, <laughs> So in Palestine, in particular, English was very clearly something that elites would learn. There was um, this institution, the Arab College of Jerusalem, and college is misleading. It's not a university. It's more of a high school and a teacher training institution. 
but there, um, these were sort of the top individuals in Palestine. They were selected based on their being the top one or two students in their classes. And so they would go there and these were the people who would become teachers, but also novelists, mathematicians, politicians, etc. And in this institution, they really got a very English education and would become fluent in the English language. Um, and so for them, it's sort of a signal of erudition. They still hated the British, but they were quite appreciative of the language and even sort of style of schooling and culture because they were validated by it. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, in Iraq, you had, an, you had more of a language issue because you have quite a large Kurdish population. Right. So there you did have Kurdish language schools and Kurdish language textbooks, but there were certain attempts to try to integrate them more into the Arabic language, particularly during the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. So at some point you mentioned that the British want to keep education relatively rare because they're afraid that education is going to lead to revolution. How, how realistic does that seem based on what you've, what you've studied? Well, so what I found is that it seems that it actually doesn't lead to revolution that um, that essentially this fear of the educated unemployed is never realized. The educated are always employed by the government because they're so few. Um, on the other hand, most of these uh, individuals that I study, particularly in later discussions, um, because of course now, right, we have Iraqi nationalism, we have Palestinian nationalism, we have Jordanian nationalism. So historians and um, sort of popular narratives have looked back on these teachers and said, no, they were really nationalists because look at all they were writing, look at all they were doing, they were revolutionaries. They were part of growing revolutionary movements. But what I found is that they sort of talk a big game, but they don't participate. They're all getting a government paycheck. And this is something that happened during the Ottoman period as well, where individuals who were interested in leading revolutionary movements who were educated would generally become part of the government itself. They'd be incorporated. So the revolutions that really do take place during this period come from people who aren't educated. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in Palestine in the late 1930s, you have a peasant-led revolt because these are the people who are really suffering under British rule and because of Zionist immigration and labor policies. In Iraq, you have a huge movement towards militarization and the people who end up leading more military revolutions, and this is sort of a pattern that continued you know, through Saddam Hussein, are not that well educated. They're from lower classes. They couldn't find the time or a good path to make their way through the education system and the civil service. So instead they join the army and find social mobility there. And in Jordan, the thing is you don't get revolutions in part because the, the government sought to incorporate different leaders into government service. So the, you know, it's only in the 1950s that the government finds itself unable to employ all of the secondary school graduates in the whole country. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, we're running a little bit low on time here, getting towards the end. Uh, mm-hmm. If listeners are interested in learning more about this period or this topic, uh, could you just maybe give us a few of the more accessible, best-written books or movies or, or other sort of things related to the topic? Where would somebody go if they wanted to sort of educate themselves more about this material? Well, I think a good place to start would be looking at there's some memoirs from literary figures that are really good reads and also give a great window into what life was like during the period. Um, So, for example, Jabra Ibrahim Jabra, who's a Palestinian novelist, um, writes he has a memoir in two parts. Um, I think the first one is The First Well and the second one is Princess Street. And he moves from Palestine to go to school in England and ends up in Iraq. And he's also a brilliant writer. He has great fiction. He translated Shakespeare into Arabic. He's a lot of fun. Um, Another one for Iraq, um, where again, there's actually, there's a large Iraqi Jewish community that was extremely, you know, sort of literate and involved. And many of them ended up in Israel and One of the good memoirs of them is by a man named Sassoon Solmech. Um, And his work is, again, it's a really good window into what was going on in the period. If anyone finds a good movie on this, I'd be really (laughs) interested, but I haven't haven't seen anything. And there's um, most of the historical works that are written on it are... I think too concerned with you know sort of either religion or how to explain why we end up with an Israel and no Palestine, et cetera. But these books are sort of a more personal account and give you a better sense of really what it was like to live through these events. Right, and we'll put the names of these uh, on the blog historicaloutreach.blogspot.com, so you don't have to jot them down right now. And if anybody has any ideas for movies, uh, please post them in the comments there, and I'm, I'm sure Haley would appreciate that. All right, I think we're just about out of time, but this has been great. Thanks a lot for being here today.